Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. India has taken the position that it has done because it sees everything in the Indo-Pacific through the lens of competition with China. And odd as it may seem, even India's decisions with respect to Ukraine in Europe is tied very intimately to the strategic competition that India has engaged with China. And how does all this add up? It adds up because the Indians are desperate to make certain that the Russians do not have great opportunities to sidle up with China. And taking this position of neutrality, at least publicly, is an effort to signal to the Russians that India will not condemn it if it can help it. Even though privately, the Indians have been quite dismayed by the Russian decision to invade Ukraine. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at The Asia Group. And I'm Sherian Anker for Bloomberg TV's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are pleased to be joined again by Ashley Tellis, one of the foremost experts and practitioners of strategy and U.S. foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific region. Ashley, as many of us know, is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is also a counselor at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where he directs the Strategic Asia Program. And we are very fortunate to call Ashley a, a colleague here at the Asia Group, where he is a senior advisor. Following a distinguished career in the U.S. Foreign Service, Ashley served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to President George W. Bush and Senior Director for Strategic Planning in Southwest Asia. At the State Department, Ashley was a top negotiator of the pivotal 2005 U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Agreement. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, it's a real pleasure to have you back on Tea Leaves. It's a pleasure, Rexon and Sherry. Good to see both of you. I'm delighted to be back. So, Ashley, we spoke last in June 2021, 10 months ago, although, as I was saying earlier, it feels like much longer than that in terms of geopolitical events broadly. Back then, India was battling one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks of the pandemic. But in the context of the relationship, while there were some uncertainties in U.S.-India relations, it seemed generally, that you know, relations between Washington and New Delhi were on track and on stable ground and had a pretty you know, upbeat outlook. You know, several things have happened since that time, a few of which, just to set the table, developments in Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal that culminated in late summer of 2021. There was a first in-person quad meeting of the leaders of the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. We've had sort of continued and escalating tensions for a a period along the India-China border. Of course, more recently, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then just within the last few weeks, political uncertainty in India's neighbor, Pakistan, where we've seen change in government. And, you know, as we are speaking here today, uh, a new interim prime minister. You're just back from several weeks traveling in India. I thought we'd start the conversation 
asking you to give us your basic assessment of the outlook from New Delhi, from the Indian perspective on the bilateral relationship, on India's national security interests. What does it look like today from New Delhi? So, Rexon, those are really large questions. And I think it's safe to say that the Indian leadership is grappling with a series of perturbations, discontinuities around its borders that you've laid out. And it started with, of course, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. That was not surprising to India because they saw it coming for many months before we actually did, though the circumstances of the withdrawal were very startling because they expected a greater degree of management. They thought we could have better managed the withdrawal. And that, of course, raises questions about American competency and American commitment, even as we were withdrawing. And that's something that they've obviously attempted to digest And the aftermath of that, you know, has produced a set of problems that they're still grappling with. Uh, So, for example, one of the themes that comes up frequently in conversations with Indian policymakers is the fact that we left behind a very large trove of, you know, war materials of weapons. And those weapons have a tendency to walk away from where they were left. And India has to cope with the consequences of some of these weapons now beginning to make an appearance, you know, on India's territories in Jammu and Kashmir and elsewhere. So the management of the withdrawal is certainly something that they've been attempting to cope with. As you point out, the other bookend right now is the crisis in Ukraine, where the differences in India's interests and the differences in India's strategies of managing the crisis are on stock display. The United States had certain expectations of India, which have not been met because India has taken a position of studied neutrality with respect to the Russians, at least formally. And the U.S. would have liked India to have been in more open condemnation of what is very flagrant, you know, that is obviously very flagrant uh, aggression. So these are two bookends that I think amplify or confirm the kinds of uncertainties that dominate Indian foreign policy making, you know, today. But having said all that, I think the relationship is still very much in a good place and in large measure because both sides have made extraordinary efforts to keep it that way. And I think you will see more proof of that in literally the next couple of days uh, as India and the United States complete the two plus two discussions. And the two plus two, just for everyone, is the meeting of the foreign and defense ministers of each country, which will occur here in Washington. And as it seems, will include a virtual engagement by President Biden and President Modi with the ministers present in person here in Washington, which I think everyone who follows U.S.-India relations will see as what may interpret as an effort to reset U.S.-India relations after India's decisions around Ukraine. Maybe to start to dig in a little bit here on Ukraine because you mentioned sort of India's studied neutrality between the two. Do you see, you know, one of the things the United States would like to see is India reducing its reliance on Russia. Decades old relationship, of course. Do you see evidence that there is, that India is continuing to 
advance a discussion with the United States that will encourage us in the long run that the India-Russia relationship doesn't hold in the future what it has held for India in the past? That's a very good question. And I want to actually talk about that in some detail. But let me start off by saying something else, Rex, and which was implicit in what you asked, which is, you know, why did India adopt this public position of studied neutrality? I think that's important to appreciate. India has taken the position that it has done because it sees everything in the Indo-Pacific through the lens of competition with China. And odd as it may seem, even India's decisions with respect to Ukraine in Europe is tied very intimately to the strategic competition that India has engaged with China. And how does all this add up? It adds up because the Indians are desperate to make certain that the Russians do not have greater opportunities to sidle up with China. And taking this position of neutrality, at least publicly, is an effort to signal to the Russians that India will not condemn it if it can help it. Even though privately, the Indians have been quite dismayed by the Russian decision to invade Ukraine. And most recently, when Foreign Minister Lavrov visited Delhi, The Indians had some very tough conversations with him about their dismay about both Russia's decision and the conduct of the war. So privately, they've been unsparing in their criticism of the way the Russians have gone about doing what they've done. But publicly, they've appeared neutral because they don't want to give the Russians the sense that the only friends they have in the world are China. Because a tighter Russia-China relationship is seen in India as a compelling threat. And so that's really what explains this. Now, having said that, there is a reality that India has to cope with. And that reality is that Russia is going to be weakening as a result of the sanctions that the West have imposed on Russia. And so the challenge for India going forward is how do you engage a Russia which is going to be a weakened partner and will not be the source of reassurance and support as it has been in the past. And there are going to be both sort of political and material consequences. The political consequences are that Russia is isolated. It's really, you know, become a pariah state. The actions that Russia has engaged in has alienated many of India's friends. Those are the political consequences. The material consequences that a weakened Russia is going to be simply unable to supply India with the advanced war materials that it's been used to. And so to my mind, diversification from Russia is inevitable, even if India doesn't want it. I mean, even if there is a nostalgia for Russia, and even if there is a comfort with Russia as a reliable supplier, as was the case in the past, the fact of the matter is in the future, India is going to be dealing with a Russia that is simply going to be incapable of meeting its defense needs as it did. And so diversification is something that India is going to be compelled to do, even if it is simply holding its nose. 
When it comes to a weakening Russia, as you mentioned, Ashley, there is still debate about how effective the sanctions are being, especially in the immediate aftermath of them, especially when you have countries like India and its state-owned refiners still trying to buy Russian oil. You continue to see those flows into China, into India. So I guess that also begs the question, how much is this a really neutral India as opposed to actively helping Russia to keep cash in its pockets? And is that really worth isolating itself from the rest of the world, especially when you have the Biden administration very much forcefully coming out and threatening significant costs if it continues to align itself with Russia? So I think the Biden administration has actually got a much more sophisticated approach to India's Russia relationship than appears in public. Uh, So for example, when you look at the energy trade, I think there is an appreciation that India's energy dependence on Russia is actually quite modest. You know, it does not figure in the top 10 importers of Russian energy. Similarly, the Indian efforts to create a ruble-rupee arrangement for repaying the Russians for whatever is purchased is going to be a very modest effort because Russian-India trade is actually very small. It's strange that for all the political, you know, anxieties and the political hype about the Russia-India relationship, the trading relationship between the two countries is roughly of the order of about $10 billion. That does not warrant, I think, you know, the kind of exaggeration that you sometimes see in the press about the kind of damage India could do to the sanctions regime. I think it will be very modest in practical terms. And politically, as I said, because India is looking at this at this whole issue through the prism of its interests, it's not going to engage in egregious you know, efforts to break the sanctions regime because they do understand how dangerous Russian actions in Ukraine have been. Ashley, let me pick up on a, a comment you made in laying out the rationale that has in many ways informed India's posture towards Ukraine. And that's to try to limit the pressure on Russia to simply embrace China as its only source of support. You know, we're many weeks into the conflict and clearly some actions by China have provoked, you know, very deep concern here in the United States. Do you get the sense at all that the Indians believe that Indian neutrality, public neutrality on the invasion has had any impact actually materially on Russia in sort of slowing down the desire to seek China's support? Is there evidence here, do you think, that the Indians can point to? I don't think the evidence is as yet in. And so... To my mind, the Indian response represents a hope rather than a proof of the success of its policy. It's a hope in the sense that it's meant to convey to the Russians that India is looking for ways to avoid even deeper Russian-Chinese collusion. But if you were to reverse the gaze, and if you were to look at it from Moscow's perspective, I think there are very sharp limits to the success of this Indian strategy. Because if I were in Moscow and I was looking at Beijing versus New Delhi, I would look at Beijing 
as a source of capital that is likely to be denied Russia as a result of the sanctions. I would look at Beijing as an alternative market, which Russia may want to exploit, given that the markets in Europe and the rest of the world might be slowly choked off. And in comparison, when I look at New Delhi, I would see a source of steadfast support, but a very small trading partner, as I pointed out, you know, a few billion dollars. And so if I were to sort of juggle my interests in China versus my interests in India, I would be compelled to think of China as being far more important than India. So in that sense, from New Delhi's perspective, it has weak cards, has weak cards. It may attempt to peel the Russians away from the Chinese, but the gravitational pull that Beijing exercises on Moscow is far greater than the gravitational pull than New Delhi exercises on Moscow. There is one thing, though, that the Indians are very attentive to. However weak Russia is, it is still a veto-wielding member of the UN Security Council. And in the past, the Russians have used that power to protect India on critical issues, including wars that India has been embroiled in in the past, and on issues relating to Jammu and Kashmir. So at the end of the day, there is still that legal capability that the Russians have to protect the Indians in international fora like the UNSC uh, that New Delhi values. And even if the Russian relationship ends up being weak on other counts, you know, this is still a capability that that Moscow will have as long as it remains a, a P5 member. And so I see there are incentives for India to pursue its current policy even though in objective terms, I think it is not likely to deliver as as they would like. If, as you say, New Delhi's interest is to counter the influence of China in the region, especially by staying, at least maintaining a relationship with Russia, does the U.S. administration understand that? Because in that sense, that would also, in a way, serve their interests. Absolutely. I think the dilemma that the Biden administration has, and of course the United States more generally, is that while we are somewhat disenchanted with the position that India has taken on Ukraine and its longer relationship with Russia, I think there is a recognition that India is still critical to our interests in the Indo-Pacific. And so on Europe, India represents a dilemma. In the Indo-Pacific, India represents an opportunity. And how do you trade essentially these two conflicting realities? And I think what the administration has done is that it's made a very shrewd and calculated judgment that for all the dismay about India's positions in Europe, India's relevance to Europe is much lighter then it's relevance to the Indo-Pacific. And so they've decided to simply, you know, live with that reality and continue to build the relationship with India because where it matters most, which is in the Indo-Pacific, India and the United States still have very strong convergence. And so it has compelled us to overlook what is a very clear incongruity in India's position which is that it is a strong champion of the rules-based order 
in the East, but it has been somewhat shaky, to use President Biden's description, about protecting the rules-based order in the West. And, you know, that is unfortunately part of the incongruities of international politics that, you know, we, we have just learned to come to terms with. Thank you for joining us for part one of our interview with Ashley Tellis. Be sure to tune in for part two next week. Sherry and I broaden the conversation on the state of U.S.-India relations and get deeper with Ashley on economic, trade, and technology issues and explore where are the opportunities for deeper cooperation. As always, please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube channel. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.